Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the Tango Gillette Foxtrot podcast. This week I'm going to get straight into the interview because it's quite a long one, nearly two hours. And rather weirdly, for probably both of us, I suspect, it was with my brother, my big brother, Steve, who spent 15 years in the job and did some really interesting stuff, which you're going to be hearing all about. It was very odd conversation because we've never really had that conversation before. So many of the things that he's done, I kind of assumed that I knew about. Um, but I realised when I actually got speaking to him properly that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Uh, it's a real, it was a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to him, and it made me feel very proud to be his brother. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Morning. Liftoff. Good morning. <laughs> can you see and hear? I can hear. I can't see. Oh, um, I can see your on. name. There we go. Hang um, on. There hey, there he is. Look at you. Right. There you are. Well, this is weird, isn't it? Uh, more than weird. More than weird. <laughs> I've dodged this for <laughs> what seems like an absolute eternity, and I've finally given in through. Your persistence and your persistence alone. <laughs> Good man. You know it makes sense. So well, I can I can only feel having listened to the vast majority of your uh, chat shows chat up shows. until up until now that um, I will be a pale imitation of those who have come before. Um, no, I'm not at all. Really not impressed so. with uh, the cast of celebrities that you've put together. Well, um, you know. They've uh, I've uh, lulled them into uh, you know talking to me and uh, so far so good so so yeah so obviously um, uh, for those listening this is uh, your Steve my brother uh, someone who um, uh, I probably wouldn't be in the police I wouldn't have joined the police if I'd been for you so so that's um, so for the purposes of the podcast um, just introduce yourself what you did very briefly like you know bullet point what you did um and what you're doing now uh well very very briefly um i 
left Northern Ireland in 1986 uh, to join the Metropolitan Police, uh, ha having applied to both the Met and the Royal Hong Kong Police. Um, I ended up ultimately in London. Um, as I say, in 1986, I was in uh, divisional policing initially, uh, a drug squad, and then I moved to Special Branch uh, after about two and a half, maybe just under three years of service. Stayed there for the remainder of my police service, um, resigning after 15 years, having converted qualified to be uh, a barrister. And that's what I do. I've been actually practicing as a barrister now for longer than I was a police officer. Oh, God, bloody hell. So, I mean, this is brilliant. This is so much we can talk about here because um, we've got a lot in common, obviously. Um, and I think it's probably best if we just treat this. Obviously, you're my brother. So, you know, it's not going to be exactly like other podcasts have done. But I, I kind of want to treat it exactly the same way, really, in the sense that we'll cover what you did in the police, highs and lows, uh, interesting jobs you got involved in. Um, and um, given that, you know, only uh, less than a week ago, uh, was it less than a week ago, Salman Rushdie was stabbed in New York? Yeah. And uh, you were uh, one of his protection officers for quite a long time, weren't you? When yes. you were in Special Branch. So you're really interesting to talk about that, talk about, you know, the other people who you looked after as a protection officer. Um, and then and then there's a whole, I mean, this, this could be two podcasts easily. Um, don't, don't, don't bore don't, people. Don't, don't, bore don't, people. Don't, don't worry, it won't be. Um, uh, yeah, and then the whole barrister thing. I mean, that's fascinating just in itself. So, uh, so yeah. So when you went to the Met, you went to, was it Harrow Road, was it? Yeah, I uh, had an absolute ball at uh, the old Hendon Training School. And um, I, I think at that time we were asked what area uh, the Met then was divided. I don't know what it is now, but it was then divided up into eight areas. Mm. I wanted to work in central London. Um, and beyond that, I, I didn't know London at all. And I ended up being posted uh, initially to Harrow Road, Delta Romeo, um, or Delta Rat, as it was uh, called more locally. Um, in, well, I suppose describing the geography for those who wouldn't uh, necessarily know, it was sandwiched between Paddington Green to the east, Notting Hill to the west, um, the Royal Parks to the south, Hyde Park, and uh, to the north, St. John's Wood. So it was a, a, a real cross-section of, in one part, real community tensions, uh, particularly around the Notting Hill uh, borders at that time and uh, then we also covered patches such as Maidaville, Little Venice which were um, the complete other end of the spectrum um, and in the south Bayswater which was tourist and prostitutionville um, so it was a, really a real, a real mishmash. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the old, the old eight area, as you know, um, 
and I don't know what they, they call it. It's all changed, isn't it? I'm sure. Um, but the old AIDS area, central London, typically was lots of shopping, tourists, nightlife, um, the West End, the hustle and bustle, the ceremonial stuff around, you know, Houses of Parliament and Horse yeah. Guards and Buckingham Palace and all that kind of stuff. But but Harrow Road was very much the exception to that, wasn't it? It was very probably probably more like some of those inner city areas that were just sort of just on the other side so you know obviously working in places like clapham and you've got brixton and stuff but it was it was definitely i'd say more real policing if that doesn't but, sound too disrespectful to those no, people who work in west end central you know it was um because uh i think probably the most infamous road in the area and it wasn't on our patch it was covered by notting hill was the all saints road uh and that was 100 meters from our western border hmm. um and the police from harrow road were strictly banned from trespassing onto uh the notting hill turf for fear that we might upset um a very delicate relationship that police had there with their local community and it was it, it was remarkable i suppose occasionally um, after arresting someone, they, they would generally ask what station they were to be taken to. And w when they were told uh, that they were to be taken to Harrow Road, their heads would invariably drop because, um, let's say, at, at DR, this softly, softly policy, um, which was employed at Notting Hill, wasn't just as enthusiastically or keenly <laughs> employed at Harrow Road. Um, but yes, I mean, it was a station that um, had really diverse communities. There was a, a, a large Irish and West Indian community. Um, there were big estates, principally um, one called the Mozart Estate, uh, which had regular uh, flashpoints. And then, as I've said, uh, very high value properties in towards the north in Maidaville and Little Venice. So kind um, of, kind of the dream, the dream place to start your policing career, really. In oh, uh, it, you've got everything, haven't you? It it was. Uh, uh, I mean, if if <laughs> all police officers when they start, yes, they're going to say, I suspect that their their home station is the, is the best grounding. It Harrow Road was the best grounding. There were fantastic uh, cops at it. Um, I learned so quickly. Um, it was such a culture shock, as it is for anybody, I think, stepping out onto the streets for the first time in uniform, where you think absolutely everybody is looking at you. Um, you're just the focal point. But it was a wonderful experience. I loved it. Yeah, brilliant. So you obviously gravitated, sort of, your obviously interest was more sort of on the crime side, because you said you went into the local drug squad, is that right? Yeah, um, I I think the first few years of my uh, police service, I had a very fortunate time. Um, I spent less than two years in uniform, and that's through the entirety of the 15 years uh, that I did in the police, because before my probation, two-year probation period uh, had concluded, 
I was uh, asked to go on to the, the divisional drug squad and um, had an absolute ball there. But at, at about the same time, my relief inspector uh, had suggested uh, that I might consider applying for a special branch. So really the entire time that I was on the drug squad, nine to 10 months, uh, I, I was either submitting my application or attending the exam, the infamous SB exam, and then a selection uh, uh, panel, and uh, waiting really then to to go on to special branch, which which I did. Yeah. So obviously, um, you know, I I understand that process because um, I did it myself and going to special branch, but. It was really rigorous, wasn't it? Um, and I talk about this in my book. You know, there was a there was a very very uh, difficult exam that uh, you know would ask you everything from if it was if it was held today, it would be what's the name of one of the questions might be what's Peppa Pig's brother's name or something like that, and yeah. then it would be um, you know what would the, what was the outcome of the sort of recent elections in Liberia. Yeah. And and what are the political implications of that? It was really unbelievably broad, wasn't it? Well, and uh, and and that's really. I mean, I think a lot of people initially uh, were fearful of it because it did require a little bit of learning. But the exam itself and the whole process of recruitment for special branch worked because it did identify people who had this latent sense of the, the general knowledge, who had uh, a keen interest in politics, who knew their capital cities and the definitions of terrorism, for example, um, and, 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 and like matters. I mean, it, it, it was a tough old gig to go through, and people got really, really stressed about it. You could see that when they turned up for it, mm. the nerves. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, obviously, uh, I, I fooled someone, and uh, I was able to, to squeak through on that. Yeah, I mean, it was very, very high failure. It wasn't that. I mean, there was hundreds of people who'd go for it every year, and yeah. probably, they'd probably only take about 10, maybe. Yeah, yes. Um, so yeah. it was very rigorous. And then, of course, you had the the interviews as well which were very rigorous and they would really test your understanding of certain so so we ended up didn't we with a incredibly bright group of police officers but also very diverse as well you know in terms of diverse in terms of their thinking their behavior their their dress sense you know what i mean there's all sorts of weird yeah. and wonderful characters weren't there well, special special branch uh, was considered by many, generally those who uh, had maybe less respect for the the department. It was considered as uh, being almost a gentleman's club um, within Scotland Yard, simply because of the type of character that that was commonly uh, employed there. But as as you say, there was a complete cross section, mm -hmm. given the nature of the work and the people with whom we, or SB officers, then came into contact, you couldn't go to, for example, demonstrations dressed in a tweed jacket, as many of uh, the SB officers in the office uh, would present. You couldn't go there uh, to various meetings or uh, uh, whatever was happening 
um, smoking a Cohiba cigar, mm. as several SB officers would do routinely around the office. Mm. Um, yes, wonderful cross-section, wonderful backgrounds to to the individuals who joined and um great pals they were it was a, a fantastic team magically woven together somehow it, it it all worked or seemed to yeah yeah well i think half the reason why it had a weird and not necessarily uh, brilliant reputation with the cid so i think it's mainly the cid who didn't particularly like special branch uh, and they didn't like it for a, a number of reasons they didn't like it because we got to be called detective they didn't yeah. they felt that the only people who deserved to be called detective were cid officers yeah and, and it was also a lot a lot of it i think was about they just didn't understand what special branch did um and uh, and there's probably because we didn't talk about it exactly. That. Well, there's a element of there's a big a significant element of secrecy in terms of a lot of the things that we did, wasn't there? Yeah. And uh, you you were dealing with very frequently dealing with secret and top secret information, um, and you know there was a very very strong expectation in the department that you did not talk about it with anyone really. Exactly. Your partner, your best friend, uh, and you certainly didn't talk about it with other cops. So. Um, so yeah. Well, so anyway, I so you... I sorry, just very brief. I remember going, uh, doing my detective training course uh, at Hendon um, after I'd come into the branch, and you're right in terms of the attitude. I I, I expect I, I know that I, together with a couple of other SB participants uh, in in that course, we were given the runaround. Mm. It, it was three, four times as hard for us to mm. pass that course mm. um, purely because we were SB officers. Yeah, yeah. That was the same on every course, wasn't it? The same on driving courses, they'd give you yeah. shit, wouldn't they? It was yeah. the same on surveillance course, they'd give you <laughs> shit. You know, it's like as soon as they find out you're from Special Branch, it was like you were, your cards were marked, weren't they? Yeah. Um, but uh, so, um, so you went into Special Branch. Where did, which desk did you um, go on to? Um, I, I was thinking about this last night, uh, and I, I did a spell as was routine at the time at Heathrow Airport. I actually I remember my very first day at the yard, Scotland Yard, and the the group of I think there were about ten of us were brought into the chief superintendent's office and given the in the very the initial introductory chat. And the uh, chief superintendent at that time, I won't, I won't name him, I can't remember his name. He was a, a, an ex-parachute regiment. Um, I think he was probably a colonel. Um, and basically discipline, 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 everything. And he was drumming into us the importance of being part of this elite unit. Anyway, I had come straight off um, a, a drug operation the, the the previous day, and I was still kind of in drug squad mode and thinking. And uh, in particular, one of the, the features was my hair was um, rather longer than that would have been acceptable, certainly within the parachute regiment, but um, um, definitely within special branch. And he made a point of standing behind me and I could feel the sweat running down my back almost as he gave us a very lengthy lecture 
as to how special branch officers were supposed to present themselves. Mm. Um, not, not, not recognizing that half the special branch officers in the offices uh, uh, had so many quirks and foibles um, uh, that, that, that it was home for oddballs of, of, of all types, really. But he wanted to drum into us. My hair was cut at, uh, by 4 p.m. that afternoon. Um, and I was sent off to Heathrow Airport. I think we did an initial couple of weeks uh, learning how to write reports in only the way that Special Branch could write reports. And at that time, um, they were all done on typewriters. Um, it was pre, pre-computer or certainly pre-Special um, Branch use of computers. Um, we... Uh, typed and I I hadn't typed other than one you know two fingers um, before uh, and reports then had to be taken to a DS for uh, initial inspection and the DS would strike through various uh, words or paragraphs uh, and punctuation was corrected I was fairly confident with on on that side of things but some people had a terrible time with it and then once you'd then retyped it it was taken to the di's office and the di would then go through it again with a red pen underlining or circling or deleting retype the whole bloody thing yeah and actually there was there was an incentive there not to put an awful lot of detail into your reports because you knew if you could precede reports mm. uh, uh, th- that was better because uh, invariably it, it it meant less work in the long run but yes adapting to the new systems um, that that was I suppose everybody comes to terms with that I was then sent off to Heathrow Airport uh, uh, and I did 10 months or so uh, manning the inbound and outbound immigration desks together with immigration officers um, and liaising with all the other agencies at, at the airport. That was, that, that was an interesting time, but it, I, I never got the feeling that that was what I had joined a yeah. special branch for. Yeah, so the old P-Squad, as it was. P-Squad, um, yes. P-Squad was, uh, was one of those places that was a bit of a penance. Everybody had to serve their penance. I was fortunate. I never had to go there. Um, but then they obviously opened the Channel Tunnel and they, the terminus at uh, Waterloo. And then, you know, so the Peace Squad had to grow in order to service those trains because basically um, the Fre- I, I, I'm, I'll probably get this horribly wrong, but um, I think the French old bill um, are on the trains on the way to Paris and they um, check that there's no ne'er-do-wells on the train going to Paris. And then the British Old Bill, special branch officers, are on the trains coming from Paris to London, doing exactly the same job to, to identify ne'er-do-wells, terrorists, people stealing children, and God knows what else on those trains and planes and whatnot. So Yeah, yeah. serious serious work done by them. But actually, I remember the colleagues who who worked at Waterloo or or worked out of Waterloo, they had the absolute time of their life because invariably they'd tag on rest days at the beginning of a a shift or at the end of a shift, and they'd end up having um, regular long weekends in, 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 in Paris. 
uh, uh, something I did I didn't experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so after um, after you served your penance at Heathrow, um, where did you go then? Um, I came back onto uh, what was called Sea Squad, uh, where we were basically dealing with domestic extremism, and that was a time, um, interestingly, and certainly the work. Uh, increased in volume. It was at a time when the country was imminently facing the fallout from poll tax issues. And in 1990, I think it was, uh, we had the Trafalgar Square riots and general disorder throughout central London. Um, I was on, on the day of the poll tax riots. Uh, I, I had uh, been deployed to Trafalgar Square and ended up in the middle of that mass disorder. And how, when I first joined the Met Police, I had. So you this... were there as an intelligence gathering, yeah? Yes, yes. Not, not, a, not as an agitator, as an intelligence gatherer. Um, uh, w- when I first joined uh, the, the Met, I, I had bizarrely, because there was no good reason for it, uh, an aspiration to join the mounted branch, um, which quickly left me. But ironically, on that day in 1990, March 1990, uh, uh, I ended up at the front of a group of agitators and ironically having to jump out of the way of a mounted branch charge uh, uh, at one point. But I mean, that was the sort you, in the special branch, you got up close to the action. And that was one yeah. of the things that uh, maintained my interest and curiosity for, for, for so long. Yeah, no, I remember because I remember that day very well because I, I was in the Met by that stage, albeit I was still a probationer uh, in South London. And uh, yeah, I felt like Cinderella been left back at um, the house because uh, I didn't go up to Trafalgar Square, whereas most of my colleagues did. Um, I had, I'm trying to think, had I had my public order training? No, I hadn't actually. So, but yeah, so I was only, a, as we'd have said in those days, I was only a sprog. Uh, on, that, on that day, I had been posted to the station office uh, as, a, as a station officer, which is a ship posting on the, at the best of times. And um, so, so to be watching all this cracking off in central London when you're stuck as a station officer in South London was one of the most frustrating experiences I've ever had. You know, uh, uh, can I just say, I, 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 you mentioned that you were in, in the job at that time. I, cu- I couldn't believe that um, you, you followed me into the Met uh, at that time. And I don't, I don't want you blowing smoke um, uh, uh, at all with regard to that. But it was it was such uh, I mean a pleasure to know that you were also in the job. I have to say, if if I'm being totally honest, following me into the Met was one thing. Following me into Special Branch <laughs> um, got my back up a little bit um, initially. But uh, I, I mean, we we never worked uh, together in the no. Special Branch. No, it was um, weird, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it, it it was. But I I know your reputation preceded you um <laughs> not sure I'll, I'll take i'll i'll take that in the positive way then sean do, do. um so um let me see so obviously so you're on c squad dealing with all of the um 
sort of uh, left wing and extreme right wing uh, agitators and whatnot. Yeah. So let's talk about surveillance. So obviously, because that's a big, big, that was a big part of your career in special branch. And you did, you did a lot of really interesting jobs. So I'll give it the sort of the usual health warning uh, with these things. So we'll, we'll not talk about anything that is sort of uh, secret or sensitive that we're nope. going to get ourselves into trouble with the official secret act. When we talk about things that are kind of in the public domain or just things that are just about, you know, what it's like to be on a surveillance team and all of that kind of stuff. So I know you, I know you do that anyway, but it just, it's always useful to make that point. So, so yeah, so you decided to go into surveillance and bearing in mind, historically, but setting this in context, this is during a very, very busy period of Irish Republican terrorism on the mainland, isn't it? Yeah, um, I I went into, I did, I'd done my, uh, Detective training. I'd done firearms uh, surveillance and driving training. Those all being prerequisites to going on to then the the, the surveillance wing. Um, and I spent from 1992 uh, close to four years uh, uh, working on surveillance. And uh, you're right. At that time, um, the work was primarily focused on surveillance which was Ireland focused and principally uh, Irish Republican terrorism focused because the IRA had uh, intensified its bombing campaign in England um, in the early 1990s. And they were evidently intent on targeting major economic centers. And it, just before I, I think it was probably while I was going through my, my surveillance training, in the early part, April-ish, 1992, um, a bomb exploded outside the Baltic Exchange in the city of London. Um, three people were killed, and um, there were, I think, scores uh, injured. And then on the same day, at Staples Corner in North London, another bomb exploded. Both of them claimed by the IRA. And th this, th this happened on the day after the general election, um, when John Major's government, the Conservative Party, were re-elected. Um, and it was apparent, I, I, I guess, that uh, the tactic of the IRA trying to bomb uh, uh, the British mainland, and by doing so, uh, get the government to make concessions. Uh, uh, the government at that time hadn't openly, certainly, hadn't openly engaged in any uh, peace talks, uh, indicating that they wouldn't do so until the provisional IRA declared a ceasefire. Hmm. And uh, Coincidentally, and whether or not there was any linkage to the timing of the bombs as well, at that general election in 1992, Gerry Adams, who was the then Sinn Féin leader, uh, the political wing or a political party, but uh, uh, seen as the political wing of the IRA, um, Gerry Adams had lost his Westminster seat. Again, ironically, the seat that he had never uh, actually taken up. Uh, so yes, at that time, um, it was busy because I think in the, the, the next year there was a, there was a bomb in Bishopsgate, mm. uh, and then of course we had the the Ring of Steel 
um, built around the city of London. Mm. Uh, and then towards the end of my time on the surveillance wing, uh, the, the IRA did eventually declare a ceasefire, uh, which in 1994, which lasted until the London... Yes, the, the London Docklands bomb. Um, yeah, and so it's that. funny. It's funny because you you kind of you kind of left all that stuff just as I was as I was kind of um, you know getting involved in it in special branch. So there was a kind of a bit of a hand, a sort of a not not a handover, but you know what I mean. It was as you were moving on into other things, then I was kind of going into that world. So it's useful just to sort of set the context around surveillance at that yeah. time. The people that you were dealing with, the people that you're following, are very dangerous. Um, the provisional IRA uh, only ever sent their very best people to the mainland. Uh, they were most experienced, most seasoned terrorists um, who had been active in Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland um, for, for a long time. Highly trained, very, very good in terms of their trade craft. Uh, and, Agreed. Yes. Uh, counter and anti-surveillance um, and very, very prepared to kill police officers who get in their way. So you'll remember, I'm sure, up in North Yorkshire, um, where two uniform officers up in North Yorkshire stopped a vehicle. This is 1993, I believe. Um, so around the time that you're in, in surveillance, um, two guys in the car kept them talking. The police officers kept them talking for... Um, uh, quite a long period of time, obviously weren't happy with them. Eventually, one of them, um, Patrick McGee, I think his name was. Yes. Um, Patrick McGee yeah. uh, went round to the boot, the boot of the car, opened the boot, pulled out an AK-47 and opened up on them. There's mm. two, uni two uniformed officers. Um, Glenn Goodman, I think his name was. And apologies if I get this wrong. I'm pretty sure it was Glenn Goodman was shot dead straight away. And, um, oh God, the other PC, Sandy something or other. Wasn't it? He he was very lucky to get away with his life. He was shot several times, um, and then they were eventually caught after a big manhunt. Which I I wouldn't be surprised if you were involved in that in some respect, in some way at that time. But um, yeah, it was very dangerous. Wasn't it? dealing with very dangerous people. Um, well, I, I mean, I routinely I think for the majority of the time I worked on surveillance, uh, it was on armed operations. Uh, I mean, virtually every operation, we, every job we did, we routinely carried uh, uh, a firearm. And that, uh, that, that in itself, I'm, I'm in a self-deprecating way. It, maybe uh, I was fairly proficient with a firearm at that time, but there was one incident, um, which maybe, I, maybe I'll regret telling it. Um, it, it. We were in Middlesbrough. Uh, following a suspect, and no, no further details. But it, again, it was an armed operation, and um, fairly early on in my surveillance days. And at that time, we carried Smith and Wesson revolvers, six shooters, mm -hmm. um, heavy old metal things. And this was in the days before we converted to uh, the Glock, um, which is a self-loading pistol. Um, and I carried my revolver in a shoulder holster under under my jacket, and 
the suspect or the target of our, our operation was at the rear of the shopping center. I entered it from the other side and was making my way through at about 9 a.m. Uh, uh, the shopping center, the mall, um, being busy mainly with what it seemed was pensioners um, possibly queuing, waiting for shops to open or to collect their pension or whatever. But I, I remember I picked up my pace listening to the, the, the comms on, on my radio. And they wanted me to cover a particular area. And uh, as I started to move a little bit more swiftly, to my horror, my revolver took on a life of its own. And um, obviously recognizing that the strap that was used to secure it in the holster had come loose. And as I moved forward, um, this bright silver revolver leapt from my jacket oh, and landed with a crack on on the hard tiles of the shopping mall. And truly, I can still see it in, in my mind now. In what seemed like slow motion, it slid away from me towards this elderly couple who were waiting outside for the <laughs> post office to open. And I was absolutely petrified as to the potential ramifications for this not only would i potentially get in enormous trouble for it but the the, the job that we were on the risk of that being exposed or, blo- yeah. or compromised yeah so but i i walked over picked picked up the revolver put it back into my holster secured the strap and uh, immediately went to find uh, our team leader in his car. And I, 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 I had to. Um, I, I stuck my hands up uh, to what had happened, um, obviously concerned that the shopping mall would, uh, within five minutes, be filled with uh, uniformed police re- this, uh, res- responding to Wait, initially his, his face went a little bit pale, um, but then, yes, he did. Take take the Michael. Um, uh, so we're dealing the calls, with urgent calls going into the local police control room. Then to say yeah. one of our yeah. surveillance officers has dropped his gun in the shopping centre. Don't yes. panic. Yes. So whilst we're trying to maintain control of a terrorist suspect nearby, but um, the, the 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 funny thing about it, after all the oh my god, you did what? Um, the funny thing about it was that. When I dropped it, there will have been um, about a dozen or so witnesses to me dropping it. Not one phone call was received by local police to report a man with a gun in a shopping centre. And I don't know if that's a reflection of Middlesbrough generally. Apologies to those all, who happens hail all the time from in Middlesbrough. Well, I, I've uh, been to Middlesbrough, so I can imagine that's fairly common up there. Yeah, so um, uh, that I, I survived that, and the operation continued uh, unaffected by by my my, my actions. You had thank, some you, you had some other hairy moments, didn't you? I remember. Um, I don't know if we can probably talk about this one. The one on the train station, maybe better not to. Um, 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 uh, well, basically, you nearly got you, ne- you basically nearly got nearly got shot, didn't you? By obviously, you can you basically had a head to head, didn't you? And then the location doesn't matter where, doesn't matter when, but basically, you got in a very difficult situation, didn't you? Uh, yeah, two two of us uh, 
uh, followed two uh, suspects um, who were, intelligence told us, um, most definitely armed with handguns. And uh, we, as, uh, as our practice was, we, we went down onto the uh, station platform with them and we stood around um, minding our own business for, um, a, well, a fairly lengthy time before I decided to go over and check on the uh, timetable on the platform, um, only to find that it being Sunday, there were no trains stopping at that station that day. And of course, our immediate concern was where we drawn down there yeah. uh, in order to identify any surveillance team who was following uh, this pair, or were they as stupid as we were um, yeah. in, in, in going onto the platform? Anyway, um, we, we were able to move off again um, the proof of it was that their behavior didn't change any, uh, and it appears it, the answer was that they were as stupid as we had been. Um, but thankfully, um, we didn't have to have the the head-to-head -head or the confrontation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. I mean, it could have gone horribly wrong, couldn't it? And you were a you were a crops officer, weren't you? So you 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 did the um, uh, rural the rural yep. stuff as well, didn't you? Yeah, lo lots of training. Um, so for those who, for those who are listening don't understand that is where you covert rural covert rural observation observationally so um, having to go into frequently very unpleasant uh, cold and uncomfortable and wet environments in order to uh, maintain observations on someone or something. Um, well, I, I, it was it was a sort of job. I, I initially I thought, oh, it, it'll be a bit like camping. Um, <laughs> but it, but it wasn't. And I also I used to remember a story that um, uh, our father, our father who art in heaven, um, yeah. uh, used to uh, uh, tell about a time he was out on business in the middle of nowhere, sort of in dusk conditions, and he had to get out of the car to relieve himself at one point, and he was standing having a a whittle by the side of the road. And as he looked down, he saw staring back up at him. A pair of eyes. A pair of eyes. <laughs> and it... It's just frozen there. But he probably knows Northern Ireland background. Um, uh, at the time of the troubles, um, the, the the army was uh, was, was busy and uh, w w would have engaged in that precisely yeah. that type of surveillance yeah. operation. Well, I had a very similar, I had a similar experience uh, in a way up in the Welsh mountains in the Brecon Beacons many years ago when I was I was doing a twenty four hour kind of mountain marathon thing, and I was going across this sort of heathery um, hilltop in two three o'clock in the morning. And basically fell into this hole, um, which was obviously like camouflage netting, and landed on top of this very pissed off squatty line. They're all cammed up and covered in bits of twig and and fern and stuff. Yeah. And they go, "Oi, mate, fuck off!" 
<laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Dad had any conversation with this soldier at all. But I suspect um, that they did a few checks on, on the vehicle uh, that he got into, and uh, well, he, yeah. he he told the story. I remember you telling me a funny story about one of those jobs because they were they were horrible, weren't they? That one, I think it was on Wales um, many years ago, and. Uh, there was rats, wasn't there? Rats running over all over all over you. Yeah. Like, well, the, people were freaking out because of the rats, weren't they? And the thing is, you you also you, you can't wash. Um, you dispose of bodily waste in um, well as best you can, but you everything that you take in to a place like that, you have to take out. And that means anything that comes out of your body, you've got to pack it up neatly and you've got to take it away with you. Um, but, I mean, in fairness, the training that we got, we, we, we were trained by uh, two organized, two military organizations. There was training that we did in Hereford um, uh, and uh, there was training that we did with uh, 17 Int down the south coast. Um, and I have to say the level of training that we got was just um, beyond excellent. Mm. Um, it, it, it prepared you for that. What didn't, what they didn't necessarily prepare you for was how cold it could be, how uncomfortable it could be. Um, but of course, that's that's par for the course, I suppose. Mm. Um, so, I mean, um... the, 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 the end justifies the means, hopefully by intelligence gathering, or yeah. certainly at that time. Yeah. So, so you got involved in all sorts of really conscious of time. There's a lot to get through. You got involved in some really cracking jobs during those years, and uh, but obviously it came to a point where you decided that you were going to go for protection. And in those days, uh, protection uh, teams. In those days, there was a little bit of a kind of a they called it SAS, didn't they? You go to S squad, and then you go to A squad. And then you come back to S squad again. They kind of recycle backwards and forwards between those two squads, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it was really strange. Uh, I I was determined not to be part of that cycle. And already at the time I was going on to protection, uh, I I was reviewing my own position, and I I was looking at the potential to have a career change, but. Uh, uh, moving into the world of personal or close protection, um, I mean, that was as different as chalk and cheese to what I had been doing for three or four years, having spent years effectively hiding in open sight as a surveillance officer, um, moving then to a, a role where discreet presence was everything well before sorry i just remember before we move away from surveillance just quickly talk about that job the heinz babyfood job because that was a really interesting that was a crime job you got involved in but basically you got a you and mark got commissioner's commendations for that job didn't you uh that's right um fly, fly my flag for me um um, it, that that was actually before I went on to uh, surveillance. It was, oh, was while that? I, yeah, while, while I was on C Squad, um, and I don't know, people will probably be quite familiar with it. But what, one of the first major operations I think I became involved with within the branch was 
a secret investigation into um, Heinz and the pedigree uh, companies being blackmailed. And a, a number of babies uh, had ended up in hospital uh, after being fed jars of their food, which had been spiked with, I think it was acid or uh, broken, broken, broken razor blades. Yeah, or, um, and the plan being by the blackmailer or blackmailers to, to extort four million pounds uh, out of the companies. I, I mean, massive financial damage to those companies at the time, because obviously all products had to had to be removed from supermarket shelves. But the, the, the original police operation were, was conducted through a, a separate Met department. And they, as time went on, because they'd been running the operation for a long time, they became concerned that there might uh, have been a leak within their unit. Um, because it always seemed that the blackmailer was one step ahead of them and would change his tactics uh, as soon as police changed theirs. So as I say, a secret operation was was set up, special branch drafted in, in order to circumvent any possible leak of information. And the blackmailer was being fed, uh, drip-fed, small sums of money by Heinz, making withdrawals from ATMs and banks, around the M25, but there was very little discernible pattern, except that he never returned to the same ATM. And uh, whilst police knew the account details for the car that he was using, uh, the only description that they'd got uh, by way of a, uh, a camera fitted within one of the machines was that the person withdrawing the money had been wearing a crash helmet so uh, naturally, they might think he was possibly using a motorbike. And our operation, uh, the way it was set up, uh, I think there were about 20 of us, um, were posted in pairs in vehicles at random locations around the M25. I, I mean, it, they genuinely were random. There was, it was just on the off chance that we might come across something. All we all we knew was that we would be alerted if the bank card uh, was used in our vicinity, and and the rest would be up to us. And Mark K, I won't mention his surname um, because his ego is big enough. <laughs> um, uh, after five nights of sitting around in the cars, um, we got a message fairly late on in the evening that. Um, uh, and because I'm Irish, I, I don't mind using the, the, the phrase, the paddy factor. The paddy factor uh, uh, had kicked in and a JCB excavator had uh, severed the communication cable, which would have fed uh, any alert from the banking system through to police. So for that evening, we were completely on our own and left to um, good old copper's knives, I suppose. Um, Mark and I were parked up in Enfield, and at about 11.30 that night, we were were about to pack things in, and a car drove in, parked in the middle of the car park, and a chap got out carrying what uh, we both initially thought was a a filled white carrier bag. And 
we looked at him, we looked at each other and thought, do you know what? We're bored, rigid. Um, he doesn't look quite right. And we had the, I, I suppose, we just, maybe it was just through sheer boredom, but we convinced each other that it was worth a closer look. And so we, we got out following at a bit of a distance, pretending we were pretending to be two oiks. You couldn't be covert in it. Um, we, we were completely overt, plain clothes, but overt in the sense that we were kicking a can, literally, uh, along a pavement. And lo and behold, the guy uh, walks up towards an ATM and puts not a carrier bag, but a white crash helmet on. And um, he then probably undertook a, a transaction uh, and started walking back to the car. And when he got back there, um, I stopped him, um, told him who we were, told him I was going to search him. And the first thing I found was the bank card in the name of the account uh, that we had been told about. Hmm. And it turned out that this guy and his name, uh, Rodney Wichelow, um, he was a retired detective sergeant. And he was retired from the same department that had been investigating the blackmail. Um, uh, and during his nights out, he'd been socializing with former colleagues who had evidently let some information slip out, mm. most likely completely inadvertently, mm. um, trusting him. But I, I remember getting back. We, we, we had to take he, him back. He did, he, did he faint when he got arrested? Yeah. Uh, uh, I put hands on and... Um, he immediately slumped to the ground. He fainted. Um, looking at knowing that he's looking at a very long time in prison, isn't he? Well, he he, he got seventeen years um, uh, for it. Um, but I remember phoning the SIO, the superintendent, uh, when we got back to Paddington. We took him to Paddington Green Police Station because of the sensitivity of it. Um, and I remember the sharp intake of breath. Uh, from the superintendent whenever I told him the name, um, one of his former colleagues uh, who had been nicked. Oh, um, Wouldn't it be funny if I had, and I could just go, and anyway, surprise, I'm going to surprise you now, Steve, because I've got Rodney here in the room with me. Come on, Rodney. Come on. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like sure. Surprise, like Silla's surprise, surprise. Surprise. I'm sure he's a reformed character. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he is. Oh, yeah, I might see if I can track him down and get him on, get his yeah. version of it. Yeah, well, I did do. I'd be interested <laughs> to hear. tell me to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, uh, right, anyway, no, I just thought it'd be useful to, to get that in because it's an interesting, funny, it's an interesting story and it's a great example, isn't it, of following your instincts and just seeing something and thinking, you know, that's not right. And, uh, and yeah, and it's, it's very often the case, isn't it, with some of these jobs where it very, it feels like, you know, you're right, in, on a massive kind of fishing trip, um, trying to second guess what someone is going to do. Um, and it just goes to show that sometimes it is worth doing those kind of very, you know, it feels when you're doing it, it feels like you're pissing in the wind, doesn't it? But but actually, um, you know, it can pay dividends, can't it, sometimes? Yeah, well, uh, that's, I, and, uh, I suppose, well, it's a rudimentary, uh skill that you need as a police officer it's to 
to act on instinct, to mm. act with, with common sense, and just, just keep asking questions. Mm. Um, don't take anything, and it's the same as a lawyer as well, don't take anything for granted. Mm. Always check underneath. Always yeah, yeah. keep pulling the layers off. Yeah. So let's get into protection then. So you go, you do your training and all that. Um, we we'll, won't dwell on that because we've talk, we've had that Duncan on his previous podcast talk quite a lot about the training, which is a very hard yeah. course, isn't it? Um, so who was your first principal when you went into protection? Well, I'm 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 not going to name uh, some of the people that yeah, that, that that I've worked with because. Um, they're, they're still around, and I may be. Uh, <laughs> my memories of them aren't necessarily uh, uh, altogether favourable. Um, I, I worked initially for a former Northern Ireland uh, secretary, mm. uh, Secretary of State, and uh, he spent his weeks in and around Westminster. Uh, the work was dull as ditch water. Um, hanging around Westminster, hanging around other government buildings. Um, but the, made up for it uh, uh, somewhat by the weekends, which were spent in a, gl- a glorious rural spot where, where his family lived in the West Country. Mm. Uh, the downside to it was he hated having us around uh, his protection team um, w- w- at weekends. He, he hated us being uh, around his home. But because he was uh, what was termed a level two protection, which short of level one, imminent danger or danger of imminent attack, level two was a, was a pretty high threat level. Yeah. And from our point of view, whether or not he wanted us, he, he, he didn't have a choice in the matter. But w- what that meant was that quite often, um, we would have the choice of either standing around in a field watching whilst he built his pheasant pens for the uh, uh, next shooting season, or we could muck in to while away the time. And and actually, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it and, and got a bit of respect from him because we did muck in like that. But as I say, that, that was really, uh, that, that was a, a four-man team uh and so i was being taught really the how to do the job yeah. on the job so to speak yeah. but i was so relieved to move on from that uh to another team which in effect i i then set up the turkish ambassador in london uh there was a a, a new identified threat against uh, Turkish government premises and uh, government personnel, uh, and I ran that single-handed for for a couple of weeks. Um, gorged myself on mm. kebabs and Turkish food, which was absolutely fantastic. But language uh, was a problem. Nobody, it seemed, spoke English, and so it was all done through hand signals and. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the testing. Um, and I, I, I then went on to uh, a, a longer-term uh, protection, and uh, I don't mind uh, naming him, Michael Ankrum, mm. who was uh, a Northern Ireland minister when Sir Patrick Mayhew was uh, Secretary of State uh, for Northern Ireland. And 
Michael Ankrum was uh, an absolute joy of a boss. Um, and uh, we traveled, did a lot of time uh, in Scotland uh, in his home, with his home. He had a home then in Wiltshire. And we spent a lot of time traveling around. Um, Irish politics at that time began fascinating. 1996, the IRA still very busy, but um, Ankrum and uh, Paddy Mayhew at the time were close to the talks that were going on in terms of uh, pushing forward settlement, negotiated settlements with Para and uh, Irish Republican terrorism mm -hmm. um uh, i remember in we, we went to dublin uh, uh on one occasion it was a, it was quite a short trip um we, we were in and out uh, in a day and i i in one of your past podcasts um fantastic uh uh memories of it the, the special escort group oh, yeah. um they are in the met they are, in my view, the uh, just the most professional organization. They are the finest flag carriers for the Met um, then, and I suspect still so today. But when we went to Dublin, um, it we'd flown over on one of the RAF Queen's flight planes, which in itself, the Queen's flight arriving in Dublin is... Uh, um, newsworthy mm -hmm. but we were then picked up um, at the airport by the Garda equivalent of the Met SEG and it, in the SEG everything seems to go like clockwork yeah. and you can completely rely on their pro uh, professionalism uh, the Garda equivalent and again I, I, I'm not knocking them because I had many wonderful uh, uh, meetings with Garda officers, uh, and particularly for on, on the SP side. Yeah. Um, I, I'm certainly not knocking them. But um, when we saw the escort team at the airport, nothing could be further from the SEG image that we were used to. There was a, there, there was a BMW, um, a Kawasaki, uh, a Honda, and possibly something else possibly and i remember at one of the junctions as we were i mean the, the seg remarkably are able to move a convoy of vehicles at a steady 20 25 30 miles per hour the garda escort team were determined to get us from A to B, as quickly as we could possibly move. It was like an emergency shirt, almost. <laughs> and I remember at one of the junctions with sirens wailing all around us, that's the other thing, the SEG, apart from the whistles that you hear, yeah. you just don't know that there's anything, anything happening. Yeah. When the Garda were moving us, Wow, it was it was like an American presidential convoy almost. The noise and just in your face. But at one of the junctions, one of the escort uh, group, he went into the junction, and I remember so clearly, he took both his hands off the the handlebar of the bike, raising them to the side, 
to stop the traffic entering the junction while still wheeling freely uh, at about 20 miles per hour into did he, the junction. Did he then get on his stand on his head on the saddle? Do <laughs> 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 a handstand. It really was, and I'm sorry if there are any Garda officers who take an interest in your podcast. Highly unlikely. I think there are. Oh, no, there are. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking them. I'm not knocking them. And we got there safely in the end. So um, all's well that ends well. Brilliant. So, given given sort of recent events, um, just sort of fast forward to Salman Rushdie. I think the, you know, it's been a long, obviously horrific attack. Uh, last week uh, he's obviously sustained very serious injuries um, and you know we hope he he makes a speedy recovery um, but that was a really interesting period of time wasn't it and yeah uh, you were on this protection team so do you want to talk about that yeah um, operation malachite and there's there isn't I I, I can be quite uh, open about an awful lot of aspects if if I need to go into them uh, aspects of the protection setup because uh, Salman himself wrote a book which he published in 2012 or thereabouts called Joseph Anton and Joseph Anton was his uh, pseudonym his special branch or intelligence services provided pseudonym, mm. which uh, was used throughout the time that he received protection. Mm. And we would call him Joe. Um, we, we wouldn't call him Salman. We just got used to calling him Joe. But Operation Malachite uh, started in 1989. And th- this is probably broadly known news to, to, to most people. Ayatollah, Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, uh, who was the uh, supreme leader uh, of Iran, issued a fatwa against uh, Salman uh, following the publication the previous year of the Satanic Verses. And um, immediately that that fatwa was issued, uh, uh, Rushdie, being a British citizen, um, was given police protection. His life uh, and all those immediately close to him changed immeasurably mm. uh, for over a decade. Yeah, uh, and I think it's uh, fair to say, isn't it, that um, you know, without disclosing uh, sensitive issues, I think the threat against him was probably higher than almost anyone else. Uh, oh, un- undoubtedly, undu- undoubtedly, there there were, uh, we were told, active efforts. Uh, to trace him, and there was a the, the fatwa, which was a direction in effect uh, uh, to kill uh, him, was supported by a substantial financial reward that would be uh, made available to the person or persons who succeeded in ending his life. And the, the, the issue as to why somebody a couple of weeks ago, 10 days ago, um, as to why they would still wish to enforce a fatwa, uh, the rules as such of a fatwa, as I understand them, are the fatwa itself never can be withdrawn mm-hmm. unless it is withdrawn by the person who initially puts it in place. And the Ayatollah, who Khomeini, 
who put it in place, he he's dead. So mm. it exists forevermore. Yeah. And um, I mean, subsequently, I think people have been asked. Um, they've they've considered whether or not uh, it could be removed, and. Um, one of the Ayatollah's successors in Iran um, indicated that the fatwa was fired like a bullet that won't rest until it hits its target. Hmm. So it was still in place, albeit it didn't or hadn't received official government support from hmm. Iran yeah. uh, for many, many years. Yeah. But so, so you were effectively um, living with him, weren't you? Yeah, uh, in 1997, 1998, I, <laughs> it's it, it, in the way that Special Branch was always very good, one of the bosses would quite often say, Steve, do you fancy a pint or take you out for just a, 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 an evening? And um, there were two of us uh, uh, taken out, Mark Kay and myself. And uh, Rab, who shall otherwise remain nameless, um, took us out and said, guys, um, best job in the world. He did a real hard sell on it. Um, you can earn an absolute heap of overtime. Um, only downside is it's Operation Malachite. And um, you've there, got a good... There's a pretty good chance you're going to get shot. You, there's a pretty good chance that there'll be people looking to kill your principal uh, and you may get caught up in it. And also, you have to live with him. Um, and that's what what I did initially going in to live in his house in North London. Again, no mysteries uh, as to the location of it now because he wrote about it openly in his book. It was in... Um, <laughs> Again, hiding in plain sight. Um, Bishop's Avenue in North London, Highgate, um, one of the most exclusive streets, certainly in terms of price, um, in London. Mm. And uh, our function was to keep him safe whilst at home, um, to maintain security of the house itself, and then to move him covertly in order to meet up with the overt team who would take him on to to functions or social outings yeah so that's an interesting point you make so there's basically there's the covert the covert team which is you you and mark and there's uh, an overt team so if he goes to a a, a sort of a public area the overt team would take up take over but effectively as soon as he's done and dusted at that event he's handed back to you guys isn't it absolutely and then we we i mean there's no no real mystery nobody would be surprised about it we went through um certain motions in order to ensure we were running free uh, before we'd take him home. Yeah. Uh, and then we'd be locked up until, and it could have been several days before he was going out again. Um, obviously, he didn't walk to the shops. He, could, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a dog, for example, that he had to, to take out. Um, we, we were... We were locked in there with him. So that and... must have been such a weird experience, because typically on on um, on protection, you will be with the principal, kind of during when when they're out and about. Um, you'll pick them up from home, um, do what they have to do, and then at the end of the day, you'll drop them back home again. And then 
it's kind of the local uniform will bill will probably maintain a presence in the vicinity of the address, but you're not actually living with them, are you? Whereas this this was you were actually living under the same roof as someone. Yeah, there was no uh, diplomatic protection group or uniform police presence, no involvement from them at all. It was a completely secret, covert uh, operation mm. that uh, we were party to. And it was it was incredibly intense, um, not, not just because of the conditions uh, in, in which we worked. Um, as, as coppers, you, you want to get out and about, you want, to, you want to be looking at stuff, you want to be chatting to people. You've got to get on really, really well with your colleagues when you're, when you're locked in a house with them, literally, for 24, 36, 48 hours. Um, but also, it was, it was obviously difficult. And this is where I've got enormous sympathy for uh, Salman and the stresses he was under, because it's difficult to work with someone when they, uh, uh, he and his then ex-wife, um, they didn't really want us, not surprisingly, in, the, in their home. Um, here we were, an armed team, um, and we would walk around sometimes with uh, Heckler and Koch, you know, a, a submachine gun um, over our shoulder or uh, on our back. Um, we'd carry sidearms as well, the Glock pistols. Um, and you don't want, when you're living in your own home, to be met with that sort of thing. So we, yeah. we, we had to be really su as subtle as we could be. But obviously, we couldn't avoid contact with them. We shared their kitchen. Uh, we were the first thing that they saw every morning when they came down uh, stairs. The first thing they saw was one of our ugly mugs, um, just checking, you know, who who was moving around. Um, but again, it was a job that demanded absolute secrecy and absolute professionalism. I oh, yeah. I, I never told anyone whilst I was on that job, mm. certainly not, not even until his book was published. Yeah. I never told anyone where I went to work. People, yeah. people, some people knew who I was working with, yeah. but uh, never the location. Yeah, no, I can remember that very well. And, um, you know, I knew that you were on that team, um, but you never discussed it. I never asked you. Um, uh, it was, it was something that people did not discuss operation malachite was one of those things that we kind of people kind of knew of but that was it it was very much frowned upon to try and quiz anyone about it or anything like that it was it was it was it was as tight as it could possibly be wasn't it yeah yeah and um i mean again credits to the branch um no location at which he was at, as far as I'm aware, mm. was, was was ever revealed. Uh, the, there were no, the, there were a couple of hints that members of the press uh, had got wind of of locations, but that was never that was never really followed up. Mm. Um, but it's then an it's an interesting one for you, though, in the sense that if you think about it. Um, what are your what are the like most likely the most the most likely scenario is that someone 
who's a bit of a nutter, um, tries to attack him by some miracle figures out that it's him living that address. You can deal with the nutters, can't you? That That's not your worry. The, the most worrying scenario is that Iranian special forces are, are you know, brought in clandestinely into the UK. Um, they set up an operation, they identify where he's living, and then they assault the address. Absolutely, um, yes. So if it's going to happen, the shit is going to hit the fan really, really badly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not going to go into the details because, well, I, I mean, touch wood, there will never have to be another similar operation mounted. Um, but there, we, we were well equipped mm. um, and we were pretty well trained for that. Um, the concern, I suppose, might have been we, we, we would have been outnumbered. Yeah. Um, well, well, Mark, I won't just embarrass him or disclose it, but, but um, you know, I, I wouldn't have messed with you and I'm your brother. Um, I, I, w I definitely wouldn't have messed with Mark. Um, Mark was ex-military and ex-effectively ex-para, ex-para's yeah. um, ex officer and hard as nails. Um, so, yeah, so he'd so, tell you. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm very, very relieved that um, that operation, uh, particularly because you were involved in it, you know, went um, smoothly and ultimately was able to, we were able to withdraw. But it just, you know, that incident there, whatever, 10 days ago, just goes to show that he will be under threat for the rest of his life, won't he? Well, he, he will be. And um, I, I suspect that the uh, wheels within the intelligence community will be turning um, rather faster than they had done for uh, a number of years. And people mm. will be reviewing how he can be protected. He's resident now in the States on a, as I understand it, permanent basis. Uh, so it will fall presumably to to the americans to mm, mm. Uh, to look at their security measures but yeah. it was a, i mean the, the the way um the protection in terms of the residential protection uh, uh i was involved really until i think close to the end of the residential protection mm. um uh, that was ended with quite an unfortunate it's comical in hindsight in some ways but frightening in uh the the, the same vein um the end of the residential protection came as a direct response to an unfortunate incident where one of the guys one of the prop team in the house was unloading one of his weapons accidentally discharged it oh, and um firing it across the entrance hallway okay. um skimming and then the, the, if there's a comical element it, it's it's this skimming salmon's prized jukebox um <laughs> which which had pride of place in in the hall but um after after that, I mean, understandably, and I know the officer and, and, and uh, Rushdie wrote about this incident in, in his book again. So again, I'm not telling uh, anything uh, secret here. I know the guy uh, involved. I know he was absolutely devastated by the accident. Um, the, well, the negligent discharge, I suppose, in, in formal terms. 
Um, but that gave Rushdie the um, the leverage to get rid of the cops under his roof mm. um, because he couldn't live with that threat, that risk yeah. uh, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, but I do remember at that time how gradually, gradually, gradually started to sort of emerge more into the public and uh, started going to a lot more um, public events. But anyway, uh, leave, it, leave that um, just... Yeah, there was the one person I just wanted to touch on is uh, Reverend Ian Paisley, RIP. Um, you looked after him for a while, didn't you? And uh, he was quite quite a comical character, wasn't he? Politically, uh, RIP, as he was known, and he is now um, RIP. Um, but the Reverend Doctor Ian Paisley, I worked with uh, many times when he was in London or in on holiday in the UK, uh, simply on a, on, a, on a temporary basis. You never got uh, a permanent attachment or, or posting to individuals like him. Um, guys who were spare, uh, uh, if their normal principle was away um, or they were on rest days, um, you would fill in doing temporary prods. And... Um, a couple. If you if you allow me to tell you about uh, yeah. RIP, I, I I'd also there's a temporary prot I did with the Estonian Prime Minister, um, which I, I can run through. But RIP was a fascinating individual, and up close, but that's one of the great privileges of being a protection officer, is that you see exactly what makes people tick, mm. and you get to see more than that which they would ordinarily simply wish to have presented in public. Mm. Um, at that time that I was uh, working with, for, alongside him, um, he was starting to get involved with the negotiations, albeit that they were principally focused on the Irish Republic and the nationalist side uh, at that time. Ian Paisley, of course, coming from um, the very staunch loyalist uh, Democratic Unionist Party, um, of which he was the leader. But he had so many idiosyncrasies as well. Um, for example, one thing, he would he get it. like this grub, didn't he, as well? He liked his grub, and I'm going to tell you about that in a minute, but going to the beginning of the day, um, he would get into the car in the morning. He, we, we would pick him up, and it was a two-man team, a driver uh, and myself, or whichever protection officer was assigned to him. He'd get into the car, and before we would move off, he would have a little routine, which uh, would often catch out the protection officers or the driver who hadn't worked with him before because door closed, everyone ready to go. And um, one of the perhaps understandable rules of protection is that you, you don't want to be sitting still for very long, particularly when you're um, uh, protecting um, what was by certainly one pretty large community in Northern Ireland, um, a hated character. Ian Paisley was loathed and detested by many, um, respected by many as well, and adored by many. But uh, 
Paisley, as soon as the protection officer was in his seat, rather than let us drive off, he would uh, announce in his very broad brogue, which I won't try to repeat, he'd say, let's just have a little prayer before we move off. <laughs> and sometimes it was a little prayer, but sometimes um, not so little, um, dependent on what business he had that day, because he would go through effectively his diary for the day um, <laughs> with God you and God yeah, we, we, yeah just with us and God listening in um and perhaps the saving grace was that he he always prayed for the boys who look after me this day he would finish with uh, an amen um but unless we in the front of the car gave a chorus of amen he would look disapprovingly at us in the we both had a mirror the the, the standard rear view mirror for the driver but i also had a rear view mirror um, but he he would look at us in those mirrors and until we said amen he said right boys we may go <laughs> um, uh, but a, a driver who was uh, not used to that he'd be he'd have his hand engaging drive uh, repeatedly putting it into neutral, putting it into drive, revving the car, and until we got the say so, we couldn't move off. And um, but at the at the other end of the day, uh, when we, quite often um, he'd fly out, he wouldn't stay in London overnight, and he'd he'd never stay in a hotel in any event. But if he was flying back uh, to Belfast, um, normally the procedure for let's call them VIPs generally, you can whisk them through the airport. There's a very established procedure to get them in and onto their planes. Um, now, that, I mean, Reverend Ian was an enormous man um, uh, in character and, and in build. And uh, you, you hinted at his, uh, his love of food. He needed refueling uh, uh, on a regular basis. And one of his habits was to leave enough time to go to um, an airport hotel before his flight and to eat. Um, and he always had his prot officer sit with him at the same table. Um, ordinarily, if you were with a principal in a restaurant, you would sit at a different table. But he was on his own. I was on my own. And he'd just have a chat. Uh, he'd chat about my, my home life my history in Northern Ireland, without delving, he was just interested to know a bit of background. And on one occasion, he ordered fish and chips. And I thought there was an emergency of some sort because he wolfed it down. Um, I, I was falling behind and I was pretty sure I was going to have to leave half of mine and, and get up with him whenever he left. But instead he called the waiter over and he ordered exactly the same again. Okay. Um, Two double, double fish, double chips in the time it took me to eat mine. Um, I re remember him uh, uh, very fondly, actually. He was, he was uh, an interesting character. Oh, yeah, not all. Um, yeah. uh, there was one, one sorry, I'm, I'm boring you with. No, the, no, not the, at all. No. Rev, Rev, Reverend Ian. Um, he was known to be blood and thunder preacher. Uh, and 
old footage of him, particularly in the late 60s, early 70s, mm. when the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland was uh, reaching its peak. Obviously, ultimately, uh, that process triggering um, years of the troubles. Mm. But Paisley being on the other side of that um, would very easily speak in front of crowds of hundreds, thousands mm. in that um, so well-known booming voice that just resonated throughout a room. And I remember a trip to the northeast of Scotland uh, uh, one time. He was doing, it was specifically a preaching trip, and he would go to free Presbyterian churches uh, in, in that area. Um, the insight again to the man and the power that he had over people. He was preaching one night to a church which was filled to capacity. People had driven miles to come to hear the, the great Reverend Ian preach from the pulpit. And he preached solidly for 90 minutes mm -hmm. without, without a breath, the same booming voice. I mean, it would um, invoke fear mm -hmm. in a timid, a timid man, mm -hmm. but it was just his, his, the way he was able to uh, present his advocacy it was just incredible and it was it was so clear how he had maintained the loyalty of so many for so long mm. because he presented in an entirely and would convincing he be talking way. in the in those in those um sermons one of a better word would he be talking about um you know theological issues or was he talking about um sort of political issues or would he kind of no no mi was, mix the two up it was it was mainly it was it was a moralistic uh, sermon, but basically uh, founded on scripture. It wasn't it wasn't a political uh, uh, speech right. at all. Right. Right. Um, right. So let's get on to the barristering lark. So um, so obviously it comes a point where you decide that you've had enough of policing, um, and uh you you do a law degree whilst working full time didn't you uh, i was working with jack straw who was home secretary uh at the time and uh i had convinced myself or been convinced by others to get back to university um uh, and to follow in effect a dream i had had for decades um, I, I had many years earlier considered being uh, a solicitor. Um, that didn't work out or I didn't follow it through. And uh, ultimately, I decided that uh, going to the bar was something that I really, really wanted to do. And while I was with uh, the, the home office, working at the home office, um, I did a conversion course you, you have to have a, a, a law degree for anybody who doesn't have a law degree you have to do a conversion course so I did that part-time over two years whilst working full-time with, with Straw's team and um, then I did the bar course full-time whilst working part-time 
So I was able to fund effectively my studies uh, for a number for a number of years, mm-hmm. um, and then in two thousand and one, um, I had uh, it is a privilege. I had the great privilege. Jack Straw proposed my call to the bar and oh, it my so call that, to it that, in doesn't, the temple. that doesn't happen every day does it for the home secretary to be your kind of sponsor no well it, i mean he, he he was a barrister uh, originally uh and he was what's called a, a bencher a senior member of the of inner temple um so he was he was able to propose my call but yeah yes privileged to to, to have him do that um so you left then, obviously. I left in 2001. Uh, what did that feel like when you left? I suppose had I been going on to nothing or just stepping into, into the wilderness, it would have been very different. Um, I, I was very comfortable as, as a police officer. I, I really enjoyed my time in the special branch. Uh, so to a certain extent, it was a leap into the darkness. But the way that work picked up uh, as a junior barrister, um, you, you didn't really, I didn't really have uh, much time for close reflection or worries, uh, maybe, as to what, what I had done. I went to uh, initially uh, uh, a set of chambers that did primarily prosecution work. Uh, uh, and that's where I, I thought my, my future would lie. Um, mm-hmm. Just focusing on, as an ex-police officer, well, the natural progression was to, to work uh, prosecuting cases. But the, uh, that, that, in fact, wore not thin, because today I still I prosecute 50%, defend 50% mm. uh, in terms of my workload. Um, after four or five years i moved to my current set uh, of chambers and uh, you're a dry dry stone dry stone chambers uh yes in bedford row and i think we, we would set ourselves out as doing a fair mix of work we don't just do criminal work we do quite a bit of regulatory work as well um and other niche areas but in terms of crime uh, we as a set are probably just defence focused, maybe 50, 50, a Brexit 52% um, uh, prosecuting 48% uh, defence work. So it's, I mean, it's fascinating because, um, yeah, it's the whole kind of poacher turned gamekeeper thing, isn't it? So you, you've, you've gone from... It's gamekeeper turned poacher in, in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had an odd... And we've had this conversation, haven't we, um, many, many times. Uh, I've had an odd sort of relationship with the legal profession over the years in terms of my own feelings about them. Um, and um, I think it was Steve Keogh, a previous podcast guest, who we had this conversation about what, you know his views of the of lawyers and barristers. And and he made the very sensible point. He said, "You can't gen- you can't generalize." There's some brilliant ones, there's some terrible ones, there's some brilliant police officers, some terrible police officers. Um, but it must have been very strange for you to um, defend your first... I mean, I don't know, I'm putting words in your mouth. How did it feel to defend your first case of someone who you 
if you looked at them as a police officer, you'd go, you're guilty as fuck, but it's, but it's my job to get you off. I have never defended a guilty person. I'm trying not to laugh here, but... <laughs> well, so, you can see, just, in, just you ex, can see just, on screen just that I'm smiling. Just expand on that, on that statement, because that's an interest. I mean, I think I know what you mean in the sense that... I remember you saying to me once, um, very often a person is charged with an offence that they're not... They're guilty of something, maybe guilty of something, but it's whether they're guilty of the thing that they've been charged with. Um, but anyway, ca carry on down that, that road. That, that, that's, that's, one, well, that's one way of looking at, at it. Um, it. Basically, if somebody comes to me or if a solicitor says to, to me, Steve, we've got a, a, a client, he's charged with X, Y, Z. Uh, I say, okay, what, 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 what's, he, what's he saying about it? And they say, well, he says he's got an alibi, or he says uh, it wasn't him, or he's saying nothing. Um, he won't give us any instructions. The function of the barrister is to, in the first instance, offer advice as to prospects of success, perhaps, but to guide the individual through the, the legal requirements. What does the prosecution have to prove in order to allow for a, a proper and fair conviction on this? Mm. And it's not a case. I, I mean, I, 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 I can be quite cynical. I know there are uh, solicitors and there are barristers who perhaps run closer to a line um, than uh, others would do so. Um, that's being a, a little bit veiled, um, mm. but I'm, I'm certainly not going to advance the, the, that. Lawyers do their best by their clients. They've got a job to do, and if somebody says um, they are not guilty, I did not stick the knife in. I did not kick. I did not uh, undertake that banking transaction. Whatever the allegation is, I never had a gun in my hand. Um, I didn't know that my pal was about to shoot or stab. Then it's, for our, for our purposes, it is to assess and test the evidence that the prosecution uh, present. And putting my prosecutor's hat on, it infuriates me sometimes when the simplest of uh, evidential lines have not been pursued in terms of, for example, things like simple things like continuity, things like taking a statement from a very obvious witness. Because if you don't take a statement from a very obvious witness, and sometimes there's very good reason for it, but it always it's it, it it simply provides a step onto which a defence advocate can stand and and make a point to a jury in the end. And remember, all, all that we have to do as a defence advocate is to sow a seed of doubt, mm. and that's the way it should be. 
I am completely convinced, having had now 20 years in the system, it is not perfect, but the system of beyond all reasonable doubt, or you can only convict if you are sure of the guilt of an individual. Uh, uh, I, I will shout that as loudly when I'm prosecuting mm. as when I'm defending. Yeah. No, I think I would agree with you, actually. Um, you know, I... I I as a you know it's an interesting one because when you were doing that and sort of quite far advanced so you you've done predominantly very serious crime haven't you so it's the big drug drug importations the you know the complex crime it isn't sort of tuppany hitney jobs that you've been doing you've been doing some really big complex jobs and um so it was it was interesting for me you know when I was on the other side of the fence probably you know working on those types of jobs I suppose um and and we we know that um, if we don't do our job properly and gather the evidence and gather it in a in a way that is going to be um, watertight when it gets to court, uh, then the defendant is going to get off and probably deserves to get off actually yes. because we haven't done our job properly. So it is a it's a way, and this is, and we'll come on to the, the issues around the barris, the, the legal profession, you know, the strikes and all of this kind of stuff, and the, the issues around the wider criminal justice system in a, in a minute. But I think what recent history around policing and criminal justice and the legal profession has taught me is that it's all a self sort of, it's, a, it's an ecosystem that we all kind of need each other. Um, it used in my head, I used to sort of rather, I don't know, maybe naively think it's kind of us against them. It's the police against the legal profession. Actually, it's not. I think it's I think we all we all need each other for the system to work properly. I agree. And when, and when the system isn't working properly, which it clearly isn't at the moment, then the whole bloody thing falls apart, doesn't it? Well, the, the, the criminal justice system has as a whole. And I, I, I include elements of the probation service, uh, the court system, police, solicitors, barristers. We have all been, well, the, the money has just been drained from our budgets mm. uh, uh, in particularly the last 10 years. Mm. And it's no coincidence that I, I, I don't like taking overtly political points um, because uh, had Labour done exactly the same, I would be making precisely the same point. Mm. But it, it is only one party that has been in par for mm. that period of time. Mm. And during that period of time, half the courts in the country, fifth, more than 50% of the courts in the country have closed. Police numbers, well, we know where police numbers are, and we know what the government say they're trying to do about it. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure whether filling um, an under-resourced essential service in the country with brand new, out-of-the-box, inexperienced police officers is necessarily going to impact on uh, the figures uh, in terms of clearing up crime, certainly not in the short term, mm -hmm. likely not in the medium term, and 
um, if listening to your previous podcasts, if the amount of wastage from the police service, uh, which there seems to be, is anything to go by, the long-term experience within the police force, which is needed, the police service, which is needed, uh, uh, is never going to be there again. And it's yeah. the same at the, at the criminal bar and with the, the solicitor's profession as well. Because the resources at the, er at the earliest stages of one's career are so limited that the pay, uh, and it is shockingly low for junior practitioners, because it's so low and under-resourced and walking into an awful lot of crime courts and certainly magistrates' courts, it's, you need to wash yourself after you've come out of some of them almost there is no way that those professions are ever going to be able to provide for the senior barristers, the QCs, the judges yeah. uh, in 10, 15 years time, because there simply won't be people with sufficient experience. Mm. I know. And, that, and, that, and the, the, the net result of all of that, all of the things you've just described is that people, members of the public who are unfortunate enough to become victims of crime, um, just don't get justice, do they? They don't. Get and guilty, guilty people won't be. The, the, the great thing about the, the, the system is guilty people generally do get convicted. Mm. And guilty people who get convicted are then sentenced. Mm. Um, that, that will happen less. Mm. Yeah, I know. And, and that creates a massive public safety um, issue for, for everyone. I mean, there was that horrible incident the other day, and obviously this the details of it, um, haven't come out yet, but that 87-year-old chap in his mobility yes. scooter stabbed to death in broad daylight. You know, a, a chap's been charged, doesn't he, in the last 24 hours, I believe. It'll be interesting just to see what that's all about, whether that's a mental health issue or whether that's a, is that a robbery? Is that, oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's, it was a shocking incident. And, um, and then you, you look at all the, the murders, you know, what is it, half a dozen odd murders in London in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, gun and knife crime epidemic. So the the signs are all there, aren't they? That um, you know, was it ninety six percent of theft offences in the UK lead to no one being identified or charged? Um, so you guys are on strike. Is it every other week at the moment? Every other week, and uh, this weekend or Monday morning latest, we've been we've been reballoted. Uh, by the Criminal Bar Association. Uh, uh, thankfully, we have, well, we've had good leadership in the past from that association, but we, we have leadership at the moment who are determined to see this through and actually get a positive result uh, for us through negotiation with the government and or uh, affecting action uh, in terms of the way we, we, we go about our work. And so we've been balloted recently as to whether or not we want to increase the level of action. Uh, yes, you're right. We have been out of court, effectively withdrawing uh, every other week. And uh, we are being balloted now to increase that to an all out, in other words, to all practical uh, yeah. intent the courts yeah. uh, will close with no defense advocates turning up yeah well it's shocking isn't it it's shocking and and i think um you know you've got to remember that uh that 
will come with real hardship. I mean, for, for people who are already suffering um, financial hardship because of the low rates of pay, as you say, to effectively um, not be able to earn money at all. Um, but, but ultimately, I think if you, if the argument is, if the case is strong enough and, and uh, it, it has to be the right thing to do. And it's an interesting one for policing as well, because it, because, because we all know that policing has no right to take, we've no legal right to take industrial action. And that's where I think this particular government is just taking the piss out of the police for exactly that reason, because they know that there's nothing the police can do about it. So interesting to see how that one's going to play out. And I know well, that the, there's an ongoing discussion about whether police should either work to rule or, or, or you know, ballot to take, to take industrial action. Yeah. I, I, I think because you are, or you, the, the, the police service is an emergency response, one of the uh, emergency response organisations, I think that places them in, in, in a slightly difficult uh, and certainly different position. Um, but at the same time, if, and I know in Scotland, um, the, the, the police uh, Scotland officers, um, are, as I understand it, are doing uh, a work to rule of sorts mm. uh, at, at the moment. I don't know if that's ongoing. But yes, there are a vast number of elements of the police function which should be dispensed with. Mm. The, the distractions to getting on with cracking down on crime, arresting bad people, keeping people safe. Yeah. It's, it, it has just dissipated enormously. I, I listen to your podcast and I, I rage at, <laughs> at the radio or my, my laptop as I listen to it because I hear the distractions, particularly from a mental health yeah, uh, uh, how that uh, has impacted forty percent of time, isn't it? Forty percent of police time now dealing with mental health issues. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely shocking. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no, pan, there's no the, the, the panacea. Uh, well, what, what, what is it? Um, we can't uh, either of us um, for our respective sides keep asking for more money. I, I, I recognise throwing money isn't the answer. But when junior barristers, as with junior police officers, I suspect, when junior barristers are just saying after three or four years, I, I can't afford to do this job, or the stresses that I get from working 60 hours a week for the money I'm being paid, why on earth am I putting myself through it? it, it that's why the criminal uh, bar is bleeding resources um, at its junior end. I never thought I'd see the day I felt sorry for bloody criminal barristers, but you oh, know what? that just hey, goes to show how I've got to say... I'm not taking the piss, honestly. I genuinely... I honestly... It's a, it's an, it's a, it's, it was about to that point, isn't it? It's an ecosystem, isn't it? If you fuck up one part of the ecosystem, the whole thing doesn't work. And running alongside that is the oft-cited um, fallacy by, generally by uh, government officials and lawyers, or, uh, not, uh, not lawyers, but government officials who, who want to get a PR hit quickly, um, 
They say the fat cat lawyers, the phrase the fat cat lawyers or the lefty lawyers. That's mm. what we hear. Lefty lawyers just means an inconvenience. It doesn't. It's beyond a political persuasion because it doesn't fit with my political persuasion. Naturally, mm. it doesn't fit with an awful lot of my colleagues' political persuasion. But label us as lefty lawyers, and that sets us. Uh, against a certain sector of the media. Mm. It sets us against uh, a large part of the population. And these these are labels, the fat cats, etc., that stick. Well, I, I and, they're, the, and they're so unfair. I love, uh, I love the way that Alastair uh, Campbell has started referring to the Tory party members as the golf club bores. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> It can work both ways, can't it? You know. Yes, yes. I'll Listen, using that I'm, con I'm conscious that we've nearly been going for two hours. Um, it's probably uh, not a bad place to just, um, you know, draw to something of a conclusion. But, um, mate, this has been brilliant. Um, I've I've loved every minute of it. Um, I'm very proud, genuinely, at this risk of uh, sounding and blowing smoke up your eyes. I'm very proud of what you've done, genuinely. I'm very proud of, um, you know. All of the things you've had an, an amazing career. You had an amazing career in the police. You've had an amazing career in the law, and uh, yeah, it's uh, well done, well done you. And just keep fighting the good fight, really. I suppose, isn't it? Well, thank you. Yes, uh, and, and you, um, I, you outside uh, police, just uh, reveling in your retirement. Um, <laughs> I'm quite you're, busy. I'll have you know. You're <laughs> you're you're doing something equally important now. I think um, because actually putting out your message and uh, listening to the insight that uh, a lot of your guests have. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. And the, the only thing I suppose, I mean, you, you haven't asked me what, 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 what music I want played. I thought you were going to ask me. Uh, <laughs> I'll play whatever you my, want. My favorite tracks. <laughs> that'll be, that'll be the second podcast desert Islanders, but uh, yeah. no, listen, mate, it's, my been pleasure. Really, it's been really brilliant. Thank you ever so much for coming on and uh, look forward to catching up soon. All right, Maddie. Food and beers and all that. Yeah. And good luck. Uh, yeah, take care. Have a good day. And speak to you soon. Thank you, Maddie. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, bye. bye, bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>